Well, hello again. Um, hey, so what we're doing this semester is we're doing a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, and we've, we've tried to come at it two ways. One is to say, this is who we are. If you belong to Jesus, this is our story, and it's a beautiful summary of it. Uh, and on the other hand, this is what, um, part of what it means getting close to something uh, like a mere Christianity, something that, that binds us together in a time where it feels like we're very, very divided. And tonight we're starting with uh, the Jesus section. I don't know what else to call it. And we're talking tonight about Jesus is only Son, our Lord, um, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And to do that, we're actually going to use the same passage and go a little further from John chapter 1. So if you want to follow along, send your handout, or you can follow along however you choose. Uh, John 1, uh, starting in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then skip down to verse 14. And the word, Jesus, the Son of God, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me pray for us. I just want to dive into thinking about really the incarnation tonight. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your truth and your grace that you have preserved for us in your word um, and the way that your word points us to the word, to Jesus, your son, Father. I pray that that would happen tonight. Lord, I pray that in these words, uh, you would, by your spirit, point us Uh, To the word become flesh, Uh, Jesus, our only hope, uh, the one who um, gave his life for us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would bless us richly tonight. We pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, I want to tell you about the time that I almost missed the birth of my first child. Um, We're in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's 2006. Nope, five if you're listening, forgive me. Later, not now. We don't, anyways. So, 2005, I'm in seminary. We're in Charlotte. We're having our first kid. We're young. I mean, I'm like 25. Alyssa's 26. And we're, uh, Alyssa's being induced. This is too much info, but for the people who are interested, she's being induced, so we kind of have a schedule. And as they start the process, like late night going into the next morning, we don't know how long it's going to take. It's the first child. So Alyssa's like, hey, because we don't know how long it's going to take, I'm kind of bored. This is my wife. She's amazing. She's like, it's a little bit boring. Would you go to Walmart? And this is going to date us, but would you go to Walmart and buy the first season of Newlyweds, a show that you've never heard of, Jessica Simpson and Nick Lachey, who you've probably never heard of? It was like MTV reality show. So I was like, yeah, absolutely. I'm going to get in my car go to Walmart, get the DVD, and as I'm checking out, I don't know if Walmart still do this, but I'm checking out, and just out of the corner of my eye, something catches it. It's a little McDonald's in the Walmart, and I'm thinking, you know, yeah, let's do this, right? I mean, that's how it always is with McDonald's. You pass it, you're like, let's do this, why not? Uh, Depending on your levels of hating yourself. I didn't hate myself, I just treat myself, so I went to McDonald's, got my sausage biscuit, was taking my time, and Alyssa texted me, get back. This is happening so fast. And I get back just in time and to the mystery and the wonder and the beauty of seeing your child born 
Uh, it really is amazing. I hope you get, well, I'm not going to say anything more. So, <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. But I almost missed it. Uh, this is where I want to go tonight. I don't want us to miss the beauty and the wonder of the birth of Jesus, of what theologians call the incarnation, the word become flesh. And I just want to do two simple things tonight is I don't want you to miss the truth of it. And I don't want us to miss the grace of it. That's just simply what we're doing tonight. I don't want you to miss, I don't want us to miss the the truth of it. And I don't want us to miss the grace of it. Let's start just with briefly the truth of it. And what I mean by that is it really did happen. And it's more than sentiment. It's like history. Uh, This is the way that one of my favorite authors says it. Jesus, he he grew up, he he was born, he grew up in a redneck town. He had imperfect parents. He knew what it was like to not have money. He knew what it was like to have friends who didn't get him. He had brothers who really didn't get him. He knew what it was like to pay taxes, uh, to eat and to drink and to sleep, to be tired. He went to weddings. He died a death that all of us would be terrified to die. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, we have a high priest who gets us. We have a high priest in Jesus who really does understand what life in a dark and fallen world is like. He really did. He really was born in this world. He really did live in this world. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a myth. It's not a good story. It's history. And the beauty of history, if you're a history buff, my, I've told somebody all this story. History was kind of ruined for me because I went to a small school and our football coaches always taught history. And one in particular, Coach Brittle, I'm going to name drop him because he deserves it. He literally would just open the history book and read the entire class. So I was like, history is boring. Um, but the beauty of history is it's outside of us, and yet it has everything to do with us. We talked in the first sermon of why we're doing the creed, and one of the points we tried to make was part of why I wanted to do this is to, to root us in the history of Christian faith. That it's more than a feeling. It's more than a sentiment. We are anchored. I love the way that one old uh, hymn writer used to say it. Upon a life I did not live, and upon a death I did not die, I stake my entire eternity. It's staked on something outside of us, and Jesus himself, uh, the God-man. Um, and I want to talk just for a second, like, okay, because I know maybe some of you are here, and you're like, Apostles' Creed, that's weird. Christian faith, I'm not sure what I think. And I love this way that Ben Myers has been helpful to me. Uh, he's got a little book on the Apostles' Creed. But one of the things he said in this book that was helpful, we're talking about what does it mean that we believe in this? That we believe it actually happened. And he said, I love the way he said it. He said, Christian belief is less an irrational leap in the dark. And it's more like tasting a dish that you've never tried. Uh, So one of my best friends just got back from Italy. We hung out yesterday. He was there. Um, He's on sabbatical. He was there for three weeks. It sounds amazing. He showed me some pictures. But I think one of my favorite stories is he got to go to the town where tiramisu was invented. Which is like, okay, who gets to do that? My friend does. It's amazing. Maybe one day I will get to do that. Under the Tuscan sun. Um, but he went to this town and he said it was interesting. He's like, I've had plenty of American tiramisu. But he's like, this is the place where they invented it. And he's like, it really blew me away because it was different. It was different than I thought it was. He was like, it was crispier. I'm not a big tiramisu guy. But he was like, it was, crispy's not the right word. It was more solid. It wasn't like soft. And he was like, it was life-changing. Part of what I hope happens for us this semester, especially if you're here and you're not sure what you think about Christianity, is 
you get to, I'm going to say this way, you get to taste the real tiramisu. That's not, you get to meet the real Jesus. Could it be that the real authentic Jesus is different than he's been presented to you? Is different, better, more beautiful, more believable than you've imagined him to be? Um, I'm going to, it's in your handout if you want to follow along. So part of, part of, we normally just celebrate this at Christmas, right? Normally, like I, I was looking back, like I've only ever preached a Christmas, like a, a sermon on the incarnation at Christmas time, which is sad because it's so crucial to our faith that this actually happened. Jesus was born into the, our world. The word was made flesh. Tish Warren, uh, she's a writer that I like a lot and she's talking about Advent, but just track with me because she's talking about part of the beauty of this, part of why we need this so much is it does give us an anchor of hope especially in a dark and broken world. Here's how she says it. I'm going to start a little bit back further from what's on your handout. She says, to practice Advent is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness we find in the meantime. We dwell in a world still racked with conflict, violence, suffering, darkness, Advent, celebrating, waiting, anticipating the birth of Jesus, Advent holds space for our grief. And it reminds us that all of us in one way or another are not only wounded by the evil in the world, but are also wielders of it, contributing our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. I'm well aware, and I love, just track with me, I'm well aware that for most Americans, Christmas has less to do with contemplating the incarnation of Jesus than celebrating friends, family, reindeer, Black Friday sales. Even among observant Christians, the holiday season has often been flattened into, this is where I'm going, into a sentimental call to warm religious feelings, if not a charged yet pointless argument over happy holidays versus Merry Christmas. Still, I think Advent offers wisdom to the wider world It reminds us that joy is trivialized if we do not first intentionally acknowledge the pain and wreckage of the world. The tyranny of relentless mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often ironically feeling emptier. This is, I had a friend, this is an aside, who like hated Christmas. He's one of my best friends. I FaceTime with him today. And I was always like, why do you hate Christmas? This is why he hated Christmas. It left him feeling emptier because it wasn't about the, the incarnation. The tyranny of rest, relentless mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often ironically feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from holiday blues, and I wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer. The collective lie that through enough work and positivity, we can perfect our lives and our world. Our response to the wrongness of the world and of ourselves can often be an unhealthy escapism. And we can turn to the holidays as anesthesia from pain as much as anything else. We need collective space as a society to grieve, to look long and hard at what is cracked and fractured in our world and in our lives. And only then can celebration become deep, rich, and resonant. Not as a saccharine act of delusion, but as a defiant act of hope. Why did I read that long thing to you? It can't be a defiant act of hope unless it's true, unless it happened, unless Jesus broke into this world and it really did change everything. I love the way C.S. Lewis nerd, the way that, remember the way that Lucy says it in the last book of Narnia, 
when she says, yes, in our world too, a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world. And his name is Jesus. So first, the truth of it, but then second, the grace of it. And this is where, let's get a little more practical and a little more into this passage, the grace of it. In other words, it really does change everything. So if the first point is, it really did happen, it really is true. The second, and this is more to to us tonight, because maybe you believe that. It really does change everything for us. And we desperately need it. And we need it for two reasons. This is the way I want to do it. The grace of it is twofold. It is like the massive, hopeful point of it is, is two things. First, that God is with you, Emmanuel. And second, that God is for you. He sent his son Jesus for you. Let's just do it like that. First, he is with you. We just sang it. Do you feel that God is with you? That he knows you, that he loves you? This is where John in chapter one, he uses that word when he talks about the word become flesh. He literally says, and he tabernacled among us. He's, he's hearkening back to Exodus and he's hearkening back to the literal tabernacle where the people of God, as messed up as they were, would meet God there. And John is saying to us, Jesus, the word become flesh is the true and better tabernacle. And there's, a, there's an old commentator that says for four reasons, think about the tabernacle in light of Jesus. First, the tabernacle was outwardly humble and unattractive. It wasn't like blew your socks off. It wasn't super impressive. It wasn't what our world would call successful Think about how Isaiah describes Jesus. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Two, the tabernacle was where God met with men and women. Think about Jesus saying later in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Three, the tabernacle was where sacrifices for the sins of God's people were made. And think about the author of Hebrews says about Jesus, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins of all time, sat down at the right hand of God, the Lamb of God who takes away your son and my son. And then four, the tabernacle was a place of worship. And think about that passage with Thomas we looked at where Thomas looks at Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. Um, Harry Potter. Yeah, we're still doing this. <laughs> if you're sick of it, so sorry. This is just what we're doing. Just finished Goblet of Fire. And I can remember, actually, I, I was that, this is to my shame. I was the person who saw the movies. My wife read all the books, saw the movies. I just saw the movies, and now I'm listening to the books. I can remember being in the theater at that scene where Voldemort gets his body back. You know the scene? I mean, to me, I still remember getting chills in the theater. I didn't know the story, but it was a powerful scene to me. It was just cool. And you know, scary, and, you know, lots of things. But if you remember it, Voldemort gets his body back. And what's the first thing he's, he does? First of all, his little servant, Wormtail, Peter, you know, gives his arm to like get his body back. And Voldemort, instead of like healing him, just does that one thing where he calls all his, uh, the Death Eaters back to him, his disciples, if you will. The first thing he does, this is what I kept thinking about going to bed last night. The first thing he does when he gets his body back is he uses... Love for power. Like, remember, he just starts shaming, like, all of his disciples. He uses love for power. Jesus could not, can we say he's different than Baltimore? (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. That's kind of the point of this whole thing. Um, But think about it. Because we don't 
Jesus uses, this is the way I want to say it, he uses power for love. The word, the creator, literally John says, nothing exists apart from Jesus. And if Jesus were to cease existing, everything would just die. But he uses his immense powers, that's a weird way to say it, we're doing superpowers, you know what I'm saying, to love and to heal, to save you, to forgive you, to heal you and me. Here's where I want a little bit of application. Because Jesus made himself vulnerable, he's a baby. For you, you can trust him with your vulnerability. You can be vulnerable with him. You can take the things that you hate about yourself to him and know you're going to be met, not with manipulation, not with how he wants to use you, but how he wants to love you. The grace of the incarnation means, regardless of how alone you feel tonight, you are never alone. His steadfast love, whether you feel it or not, guides you and keeps you and is always with you. You're never alone. But also, he's not just with us, he's for us. He is really for you. Um, Let me try to say it this way. So, we know, like, if you grew up a Christian or grew up around the church or just grew up in the South, you know the most famous, the, the verse you see still at football games, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I've heard that my whole life. I'm not, well, you know, most of my life. I never until literally the last couple of days heard it said this way, and I'm just going to say it. It's from this guy, Frederick Dale Bruner, wrote a commentary on John. I'm just going to say it the way he says it because I can't beat it. I can't do better. He said, think about it. Let's break it down. God, the greatest subject ever, so the greatest extent ever, loved the greatest affection ever, the world, the greatest object ever, that he gave his only son, the greatest gift ever, that whoever believes in him, the greatest opportunity and invitation ever, should not perish, the greatest rescue ever, but have, I like the way he says it, deep, lasting life, the greatest promise ever. And when I read that, I feel the foreness of God for me. That you are so loved by God, this God who made you for himself. You are so loved by him. He is so for you that the father gave his son and the son gave himself for you. Um, I like the way that Brendan Manning says it. He says, you hear me saying, be good or God is going to get you. No, the heart of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. He is the only God that man has ever heard of who loves sinners and is for sinners. Um, here's what this means. Some of, you are, some of you feel like, and I relate to this, that you're too much for God. That your sin is too much. That what you've done is too much. That you're too much. You're just who you are, your personality. And, and some of that is because our families made us feel that way. Sometimes it's because our friends make us feel that way. 
We just often do. If you're like me, I often feel like I'm too much. And to hear the Lord say fully and finally in his son, Jesus, you are never too much for me. Your sin is never too much for me. The thing that you're carrying in here tonight that you still feel shame about from this past weekend, from this week, from today, is not too much for him. And he is always enough for you. He is always for you. Uh, let me close with this. So, college, I'm a college football fan. Uh, and still one of my favorite. This is before y'all's time. But Mike Gundy, if you know him, coach of Oklahoma State. It's still my favorite Kirk Herbstreet thing I've ever seen if you're an ESPN college football person. It's okay if you're not. Just, just, just indulge me. There's a moment where uh, Mike Gundy's early years at Oklahoma State, he plays this freshman quarterback who just has an awful game. And the press uh, starts to just trash his quarterback, just starts trashing this freshman kid. I don't remember his name. And Mike Gundy in the middle of, I mean, this is before the mullet. The mullet is amazing. But before the mullet, he just look, he starts yelling at this press, this journalist. You probably, have, you probably have seen this meme or this clip where he just starts saying, how dare you come after one of my players? How dare you come after an 18-year-old? You come after me. I'm a man. I'm 40. You come after me. It's like, okay. So they were talking about, did he overreact? And I'll never forget what Kirk Herbstreit said. He said, if you're that journalist, I get it. If you feel like you were belittled, you feel like you were yelled at. But then he said something I'll never forget. He said, but if you're his player, you are so hyped up to go play for him right now. Because you know how for you he is. Do you know how for you the Lord is? Do you know how with you the Lord is. Let me pray for us. Lord, we, we thank you that you are. The gospel tells us both of those things are true. And Lord, I pray that you um, would let us not just believe it tonight, but let us rejoice in it. Would you free us? Would you um, put laughter in our voices Um, put security in our bones because we're yours and you love us and you're always with us. You're so for us. Would we know what it means to belong to you tonight? We pray these things, Lord Christ, in your name. Amen. I'll stand and sing our closing song.